Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it is the last time. And even as Antichrist is coming, many Antichrists are already here, whereby we know it is the last hour when the rulers of the nations have gathered together against You, O Lord, and against Your Christ, saying, let us cast their their bands asunder and utter rebellion and outright war against You. We know, Father, that the days in which we are living in are the last days, the last time. And oh, Father, how the earth languishes under the iniquities of its inhabitants. And how we even groan within ourselves, us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, as we long for the redemption the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons coming into full and glorious fruition and the earth and everything that is in it to be redeemed, to be liberated together with us at the appearing of our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory and flaming fire to take vengeance on those who don't know You, Lord but to give us everlasting rest, peace, consolation, glory, happiness in Your presence forever. And oh Lord, how we are about to embark on a survey through Your Word of this glorious plan that You have to sum up all things in Christ to be realized at His imminent coming. Father, we pray that You would grant us by supernatural, sovereign grace to have something of the experience of those disciples on the road to Emmaus whose hearts burned within them when they heard these things. Open up our understanding, Father, that we may understand the Scriptures that we may discern the things of the Spirit. Apply, Father, through Your living, powerful Word, anointed by Your Spirit. Apply these truths to our lives, to the innermost recesses of our hearts, Father, so that we would go away from this meeting not as having had a meeting with men, not as having had a meeting with the words of men or the words of man, but as having had an encounter with the glory of the living living Christ as revealed through the living Word. Oh God, have mercy on us and grant us the grace to behold The glory of Christ is what I pray in His name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. 
Genesis 1, 26-28. We will be continuing our consideration of the motif of the image of God. The image of God in man. This is the key text. This is the foundational biblical text. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This text here in what we call the protological account of the historic dealings with of of God interacting here with his with his creation this historic process of the self revelation of God this text talks about the creation of man it talks about how God made man in his image it is found in a context which enthralls God as the supreme regal uh, king of the universe, God in His sovereignty, God is the reigning monarch over everything that exists. And as we saw yesterday, uh, this this text is really talking about the kingdom of God. That's that's the point. The reign of God, the realized, manifest reign of God as He makes His presence known. The kingdom of God is the biblical motif that provides the context for all of God's dealings with mankind. All of biblical history is covenantally structured according to the theological framework of the kingdom of God. The sovereign glory and regal majesty of God as that majesty is manifested through His rightful kingdom reign over His creatures, that motif dominates the history of special revelation. Exodus 15.18 says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Psalm 10 verse 16 says, The Lord is King forever and ever. Psalm 22, verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. This theme is saturating the whole of the biblical meta-narrative. I think most of us have been perplexed at one time or another, especially some somewhere around the time immediately following our conversion when we began to saturate ourselves in the New Testament Scriptures and we began to wonder why Jesus and why the apostles and why the books of the New Testament so often mention the kingdom of God. And we say, what is the kingdom of God? And why does Jesus come preaching the kingdom of God? 
Some interpreters, especially of the dispensational sort of uh, the 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 20th and the 20th century, have said that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom in contradistinction to the gospel of grace that Paul preached. And that is not the case. Because Paul himself testifies of the kingdom of God. The gospel that Paul preaches is the gospel of the kingdom of God. This motif, this theme is unified throughout the whole of the biblical witness. Jesus comes in Mark 1.15 saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is inaugurated with the coming of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And so our Lord summarizes the purpose of the whole of His earthly mission as coming to testify to the kingdom of God, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom of God, and to usher in that whole of the order that is concomitant with the inauguration and consummation of the kingdom of God. As we go forward to Luke chapter 8 verse 1. There he says, there Luke says, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings. The euangelion, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Luke 9 verse 2. He sent the twelve to preach the kingdom of God. This was the message of Jesus. This was the message that He sent His apostles to preach. This was the message that the evangelist Philip in the 8th chapter of Acts, verse 12, preached. It says, the multitudes believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. That was Philip's message. That was Paul's message. Acts 28. Verses 30 to 31. The very end of the book of Acts here. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, with all liberty, with all boldness, with all Spirit-inspired testimony. This motif is also prominent in the eschaton which is clear from a survey of the book of Revelation. If we go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, there it tells us, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. The kingdom of God has come. Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Going back to Revelation 11, verse 15. The Apostle tells us there, 
that the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. It is as if, as, as if the manifested reign of God, the will of God being done in heaven, His manifest presence of regal reign has a cataclysmic confrontation with the kingdoms of this world and their corrupted values. And as it clashes, it overthrows them and destroys them and subverts them and establishes the supreme unrivaled reign of Jesus Christ. Luther was the one that said, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. That in essence, what we're praying is that God would destroy the wicked. That He would destroy the kingdoms of this world. That He would utterly obliterate all opposition to His perfect will and manifest kingdom reign. That we are praying for our consummate redemption, our consummate salvation, for the consummate glory of God being revealed on this earth. And at the very same time, we are praying for the utter destruction of the wicked, the impious, and the non-elect. The kingdom of God. Then going forward to Revelation 22, verse 1. Here, speaking of the bookends of biblical theology, Genesis 1 to 2 on the one hand, the protological account, then Revelation 21 to 22 on the other hand, the eschatological consummation of that which was typologically foreshadowed and typologically preliminarily established in the, in the, in the, in the protological account. Here we read in verse 1, and he showed me a pure river, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from where the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the apostle is not mincing words there and saying unnecessary things. This is proceeding forth from the throne. The throne is in this place. The throne is the center of this eschatological order. The whole of the holy city. The whole of the new earth. Everything is structured around that central motif of the throne of God. And what does the throne of God represent if not the manifested, climactic, all-glorious, perfect, realized reign of God? God is reigning. The Lamb is reigning. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse. No more curse, no more chaos, no more sin, no more Satan, no more temptation, no more demons, no more despicable, pestering, inbred sin. No more curse, no more judgment, no more death. Why? Well, the throne of God and the Lamb is in it. His throne is there and His servants shall serve Him. Serve Him in worshipful adoration, willing service from the heart in perfect holiness. And the beauty of holiness 
forever. His perfect will is done because His kingdom has come. And He is realizing His reign in utter perfection. This is the goal. This is the telos of world history. This is the eschatologically oriented trajectory of everything the Bible says, of everything the Bible is pointing to. It is the utter, absolute, unrivaled supremacy and sovereignty of the living God. And it becomes evident, this motif becomes evident, not Beginning with Mark 1.15. Not beginning with the proclamation of the Gospel through the mouth of the apostles. This motif becomes preliminarily evident in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. And when we're speaking of the reign of God, it's necessary to distinguish here between two aspects of the reign of God. Because in the first place, uh, we can talk about the utterly sovereign, providential reign of God uh, over all things at all times according to His secret will. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God. It's His secret will. It's what He decreed. Only He knows that it's going to come to pass before it comes to pass. And He knows that it's going to come to pass because He ordained it to come to pass. And, and He ordained it omnipotently even. He ordained the primary, He is the primary cause, and He ordained all the secondary causes that indirectly cause it to come to pass and by the instrument, instrumentation of which all things come to pass. And in this sense of His providential reign over all things, His reign is fully realized, 100% realized all the time. Ephesians 1 verse 11, He does all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. Not a hair on our head shall perish. Not a bird falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. He cares for all things. He ordained the instrumentation of sin to be, to be, to bring about the ultimate crucifixion of the Son of God and therefore redemption of His people. This God reigns over Satan. He made the destroyer to destroy and the destroyer but merely serves the eternal will and sovereign purposes of this God. Satan is not ultimately uh, the 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 rival of God in competition to God. He may think he is, but he's ultimately being used to fulfill the the the, the purposes of God for the glory of God. This God uh, ordains all things for His own glory. He ordains all things for His people's good. And the Bible's clear about that. And in that sense, God reigns. But there's another sense that the Bible talks about the reign of God. And that's with regard to the manifest reign of God, to the willing obedience of the creature, of the image-bearing creature, to His preceptive will, to His will as revealed in His law. This has to do with the creature obediently and reverently submitting to His Lordship. And it's in this second aspect that the Bible most often talks about the reign of God and the kingdom of God using that precise terminology. 
the manifest reign of God, such as Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer. Now, biblically speaking, the realized reign of God is intrinsically bound up. That is, let let me go back, the realized reign of God over the earth. That is intrinsically bound up in the upright, faithful, representative reign and representation of His human vice-regent. Vice-regent means co-ruler. Man was made to be a co-ruler together with God. Not on equal par with God, but subservient to God. Serving God. Worshipping God. Executing the will of God in the earth. Glorifying God. Reflecting God. The kingdom of God that the New Testament so often explicitly talks about. I think that the actual phrase is found nearly a hundred times in the New Testament. That kingdom is only manifested in applicatory effectuation on earth by means of human mediation, human representation, human instrumentation. And this gets to the very heart of what constitutes the meaning of the imago Dei, the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26-28, man was made to subdue the earth in subservience to the will of God. That's what it says. Let him have dominion. Let him subdue it. Let him subdue all the earth. Let him subdue all the creatures. Man was created to have a kingly function. Adam had a protological kingly office in which he was placed. And the role of executing the will of God in the earth for the glory of God is what we call, what we alluded to in our previous session, the functional purpose of the image of God. When God made man in His image, He constituted man with a nature and with faculties that bore a certain resemblance to and likeness to God. He made man to reflect the communicable attributes of God. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the knowledge of God, the spirituality of God. Well, with with a capacity to relate to God spiritually, and so forth. He created man to reflect God. He created man with a unique nature. He created man in such a way that man is superior to the to the to the animals in the animal kingdom. Man bears an ontological likeness to God with regard to the communicable attributes of God. But he also was made in such a way and so constituted with an ontological likeness to God so as to serve a purpose, to fulfill a function. He was made to execute the plan of God for the earth. And His unique nature uniquely qualified Him to be able to do that. Monkeys couldn't do that. Sharks couldn't do that. Ants and worms couldn't do that. Only man could represent God. Only man could reflect God in that way and carry out His will for the earth. 
It's interesting that the Hebrew word translated here in verse 26 and verse 28, have dominion, is used in Psalm 72, verse 8, of the reign of the Davidic king. Let him have dominion to the ends of the earth, it says. Same exact Hebrew word. Conceptual parallelism there. Thus signifying that in the protological account, the dominion of which it is speaking is an ultimate dominion that entails kingdom reign. Kingdom reign. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 speaks of how uh, David, as the vice regent of the theocracy over which God reigns as a supreme monarch, subdues his enemies as he extends the reign of the theocracy under God subdues. He subdues them. He has dominion. He is subduing. David is a messianic figure, is a type of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. David with the functional purpose that David fulfilled there in the redemptive historical purposes of God is fleshing out. God through Him is fleshing out in a temporal and typological manner that to which He had initially called Adam in the first order of things. The having dominion, the subduing, is regal in nature. Man is to reign Regally. It's interesting that when we consult the contemporaneous literature of the ancient Near East that was written around the time of Moses, a little before, contemporaneous with, and a little bit after, that the uh, images of kings were often spoken about. And the kings themselves were often spoken of as being the image of the God that they represented. So we see the Pharaoh of Egypt that is called the, the image of Ra, the, the, the sun god, their, their supreme deity that, that they worshipped. He's the image. He was considered uh, divine in his own right. The kings of Mesopotamia are spoken of as the images, the living images of the gods that they represented. Those kings would place images as images of themselves throughout different areas of their domains to signify that they had dominion over those geographical regions. So the image wasn't just a statue in honor of the king. The image was actually meant to be a representative reflection of the king himself. We see that in uh, Babylon in Daniel uh, in the in the book of Daniel, I think it's chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar makes the golden image and wants all the nations to bow down to it in honor and reverence to him. The golden image of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just a statue honoring Nebuchadnezzar. He understood that as reflecting and representing him himself. And that's the background of how images were viewed uh, when when the book of Genesis was inscripturated. But there are some unique differences here. Whereas in the uh, pagan cultures, only the king was considered to be the image of the God or the gods that he represented. Here in the book of Genesis, 
it says that man was made in the image of God. Adam was the image of God. Later, chapter 6 and chapter 9 identifies all men, all people, all women as being made in the image of God. All were called and commissioned to this kingly service. But that whole cultural background is interesting there because what it signifies is that there is a functional purpose to the image. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 writes to them about the whole issue of veils and all that, he says there, he makes this theological comment that grounds his conversation. And he says that man ought not to cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. The image of God there is being used in direct parallelism with the glory of God. And man is spoken of as not only being made in the image of God, but man is described as the image of God. Man is the image of God. And what he's getting at there is the functional purpose of the image of God. Man reflects God. Man reflects the glory of God. Man represents God. Man has an ontological nature of likeness to God whereby he is enabled vertically to relate to God. But man also has a functional purpose with regard to his calling and commission in the earth to exercise dominion and that is a horizontal functional purpose of subduing the earth and subservience to the perfect will of God that's how Adam was created that's the purpose for which he was created Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. And as others have so thoroughly and eloquently demonstrated, such as G.K. Beale, Eden was not just a garden. Eden was an archetypical, archetypal, protological, sanctuary, temple where the Lord God would manifest His presence and His kingdom reign. It was the unique place of God's presence. It was the archetypal royal sanctuary where the King of Heaven would commune with His earthly vice regents, His earthly representatives. The later tabernacle and temple structures, according to the instruction of God, were adorned with Edenic images. Images with decorations, with inscriptions, with, 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 with adornments that, that conceptually recalled the order of Eden. So we see trees and we see this, this paradise that is engraved into the gold and, and so forth. The tabernacle and the temple represent the manifest presence of God, the manifest king, kingdom reign of God. The structure of Israel in the, in the, in the wilderness of the, of the camp uh, around the tabernacle was set up just like the kings of the ancient Near East would set up their camps. And the king would, camp, would, would put his encampment in the center of the camp surrounded by his armies. The Lord of hosts has his kingly presence, His throne, His ark, 
which represents the footstool of His throne established in the center of the armies of Israel. He is the King of Israel. He is manifesting His presence through the tabernacle there, through the later temple structure. All this is, 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 is bearing a organic, harmonious, redemptive, historical, uh, likeness to that which was established in Eden and that which the Garden of Eden signified. The manifest presence of the kingdom reign of God. In Genesis 2.15 it says that man took the, that, that the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. To tend and to keep it. Two words it uses there describing the purpose for which man was put in the garden. And it's interesting that those two precise Hebrew words only occur in conjunction with one another in the subsequent, subsequent biblical revelation and passages that describe the priestly duties of the Levites and the tabernacle and temple structures. Adam was placed in the garden as a priest king, a priestly king, a royal priest this should be uh, ca- causing a, a number of biblical texts to, to, to spring into our minds as we think uh, all the way, going all the way to the book of First Peter and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. A priestly king. He was, he was instituted there with a, with a priestly function to tend to the garden, to protect the garden from impostures, to protect the sanctity of the garden to subdue this place, to have dominion here, to protect his wife as a priest, to represent God. Perhaps to cultivate the garden and expand it even. Work it, to work the garden, tend or work the garden and keep it. 2.15, Genesis 2.15. Work that Word alludes directly back to Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight to have dominion. Working it is the way that he functionally expresses the dominion he's to have over the garden, and he is to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis one twenty eight and subdue the earth and fill it. So as he's filling the earth through the multiplication of the image bearers of God. He and His posterity are subduing the earth. They're manifesting, reflecting the glory of God throughout the whole earth. It's logical what would have happened there if the fall had not transpired. The image bearers of God would have filled the earth. They would have populated the entire earth. They would have cultivated the earth. They would have perhaps expanded the boundaries of Eden as the garden sanctuary of the manifest reign of God to the ends of the earth and as they attained to the fulfillment of the probationary period of the covenant of works attaining to the glorification of reaching uh, immortality and reflecting that final consummate glory of God the whole earth would have been filled with the reflected glory of God and the throne of God would have been supreme in all the earth Habakkuk 2.14 says, The glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. 1 Corinthians 15.28 It says how God in the eschaton will be all in all. 
Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and His, king, and His name one. His will shall be one in the earth because there will be nothing that contradicts it. He will be reigning in utter supremacy even with regard to all the affections of the hearts of His vice regions on the earth. And that is the eschatological goal of the protological order of the image of God as established in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That is the goal. That is the telos. And this eschatological goal takes on a particular Christological, Christocentric focus that comes into prominence upon the occurrence of the fall of man. In Genesis 3, we read how the divine purpose for the image bearer is frustrated through satanic rebellion. It is frustrated. It is overthrown. There we read of how God subjected His image bearers to a period of probationary testing, testing thereby Adam's loyalty he told them, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the knowledge, uh, 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 the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die." That's verses 16 to 17 of chapter two. God enters into a covenantal relationship with Adam, and it's due to that covenant that Adam's actions are representative for all his descendants. And what Adam does in that covenantal transaction will be imputed to the account of all his posterity, whether it be for death or whether it be for the attainment of the glorification of life. And we know what happened. Adam failed. Adam sinned. Adam ate the fruit. That fruit didn't have any intrinsic poisonous characteristics in and of itself that were bad. That fruit was actually good. And that tree was actually good because God created it. And God said everything was good. But it was bad for Adam to eat it because God told him, you shall not eat it. And God is Lord. And whatever the Lord says is the law. And He deserves to be obeyed simply because He is Lord. And that was the point of the whole probationary period there. It didn't make much logical sense not to eat of the fruit of the tree because the fruit was good for, for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and everything about it looked good. But it was bad simply because God said don't eat it. And God wanted Adam to submit to God's supreme majesty and lordship there simply out of loyalty and submission to the word of the king as a loyal vice regent should. But Adam didn't. Adam transgressed. The serpent came and deceived Eve and she gave the fruit to her husband and he did eat with her. And he sinned. And the earthly representative of God constituted himself a traitor to the King of Heaven. Just as Judas Iscariot would later constitute himself a traitor 
to the King of glory. Adam betrayed his king. He submitted to the devil, the serpent. He bowed to the serpent. He bowed to self. He turned his back on God. He idolized the word of the serpent. He idolized himself. He wanted to become like God. He wanted to esteem his own autonomous assessment of things and his own autonomous judgment as superior to the word of the king. Traitor. And so his dominion and his rightful place of representative vice regency, he took it all and he handed it over to Satan. And Satan usurped it. And Satan became, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the wicked one. Romans 5.14 says death reigned on account of the transgression of of Adam. Death reigned. Death came to reign. Death manifested its reign in the place of the manifest reign of God. And we know who He is who has the empire of death in His grasp. Hebrews 2.14 identifies Him as the devil. The devil. So the functional purpose of the vice-regent of God, the image of God on earth, was undermined and apparently thwarted. But not only this, but in, also in that transgression, the ontological ability and the ontological capacities and faculties of the image-bearer of God were essentially corrupted. Depravity ensued. And now all of the guilt of Adam's initial transgression is imputed to his posterity who also inherit the just judgment of death on account of that transgression. Physical death, eternal death, spiritual death. And with spiritual death, moral depravity and moral incapacity. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 Corruption of heart. Jeremiah 17.9 Unable to submit to the law of God. Unable to obey God. A carnal mind that only rebels against God all the time. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 His knowledge was turned into foolishness. 1 Corinthians 3.19 His original righteousness and holiness that He had as He was created were divested. And His nakedness, His shameful nakedness was exposed. And He became, in the words of Romans 1.29, filled with all unrighteousness. So man became incapable of representing God faithfully. He became incapable of subduing the earth in the will of God. Incapable of glorifying God. He sins. All have sinned. All sinned in Adam and come short. All have sinned. Past tense. All continually present tense come short of the glory of God. Man is the image and glory of God. Man continually come short. Come short. Come short of the glory of God. He cannot reflect 
and glorify God on the earth as He was called to do. And far from that, rather than reflecting the glory of the communicable attributes of God, man came to reflect something in his nature of the nature of the serpent because he began to engender offspring of the serpent. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. So now the seed of the serpent is being promulgated by means of ordinary generation through the reproductive process of the what were originally the image bearers of God. Man became a child of the devil. John 8. Children of wrath. Ephesians 2. And it's in the light of this, and it's against the backdrop of all this background, that that glorious ray of light shines through the proto-euangelion, the promise of the destruction, of the crushing, of the triumphal blow, the mortal blow being dealt to the head of the serpent by the seed of the woman. The redemptive promise And in the context of Genesis 3.15, in the light of the context of Genesis 1.26-28, we are to understand the promise, the redemptive promise of Genesis 3.15 in the light of Genesis 1.26-28. This is the promise of the redemption, of the restoration, of the image-bearing capacity of man. By nature and in function. And so as we move forward throughout redemptive history, we see echoes of this original creation mandate that was given to man being recapitulated over and over again. We get to Genesis 9, and there it talks about how Noah is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth right after the context of the flood and of that catastrophic devastation that was unleashed on the world and the wrath of God as if everyone was going to be completely annihilated and no one redeemed. But then God spares Noah. Noah gets out and he reaffirms the dominion mandate as if to say, my image bearers will be redeemed. My image bearers will fulfill all my purpose. The earth will be filled with my glory. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we see echoes of this original mandate given to them. The promises summarizing in the, in the words of Graham Goldsworthy, the reign of God over the people of God in the place of God. That is the kingdom of God. And all of those elements can be traced throughout all of the patriarchal promises. We get to David and we see how his kingly reign is typological of that of the Messiah and how God reigns through David as his vice regent. And yet, throughout all these centuries and throughout all these biblical covenants and throughout all these utter failures, there is not one who is found to be able to functionally fulfill the purpose for which man was created. Because David was a man after God's own heart. Oh, he was a holy man. He was a man of prayer. A man of fasting. A man who meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. A man who loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Well, except for that occurrence with Bathsheba and except for that census thing 
And except for, you know, inbred sin and other things that disqualified him. Abraham was a holy man, but Abraham tended to lie to save his face and to save his neck. All these men failed. All these men were not the one. All these men could not reflect God with utter faithfulness as God deserves to be reflected. And then comes the one to whom John pointed to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second Adam, the last Adam, the eschatological Adam, the covenant head of the new humanity. He appears on the scene as the ultimate vice region of God and His image-bearing capacity infinitely exceeds in every way that of Adam, even in Adam's prelapsarian, pre-sin state. His glory exceeds it. He is, Colossians 1.15, the image, the image, not a image. He's not one among many. He is the quintessential image of the invisible God. You want to see God, look to Jesus Christ. Lord, show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. Have you been with me for so long and you still don't know me? He doesn't say you still don't know the Father. He says you still don't know me because he who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of God. Colossians 2.9 For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 2 Corinthians 4.4 speaks of the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so therefore, Christ is uniquely qualified to represent and reflect God functionally. He is the fullness of God ontologically. He is the fullness of perfected humanity ontologically. And He is fully, fully, unrivaledly able to represent God functionally. So Edmund Clowney, in this glorious quote, says this, quote, Christ came as the second Adam, not as a divine afterthought. I mean, that's, that's important. Redem- red- the fall and the need for redemption didn't interject there as a divine afterthought, as a plan B. So Clowney says, quote, not as a divine afterthought, but as the one chosen from the foundation of the world to manifest all that the divine image in man may mean. He says, Adam, the representative man, prepares us for Christ. Christ is more than a substitute for Adam. A stand-in, as it were, to succeed where Adam failed. Christ, who is the Omega, the goal of human history and of created humanity, is also the Alpha, the true Adam, head of the new and true humanity. And he says, His image-bearing infinitely exceeds that of Adam, for as the eternal Son, He is one with the Father at the last. Adam's created sonship can only reflect the greater sonship of the divine model. So Christ comes, the kingdom of God, that's end quote. Christ comes, the kingdom of God is manifested with 
the manifestation of the Son of God in human flesh on this earth. That kingdom is inaugurated through His resurrection from the dead. He is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of God. And He is reigning as a reward to His filial obedience and to all His fulfilling of the law of God with regard to its precept, positive precept and negative sanction. Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all obedience. He took the penalty on Himself. It is finished. And as a reward of that obedience, God has exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should bow and every... Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord, that He is Kyrios to the glory of God the Father. He is the quintessential vice region of God. He reigns. And He's not alone in His reign. Because we reign together with Him. We, in the words of Hebrews 3.1, are partakers of the heavenly calling. In union with Him now, we inherit not the frustrated dominion mandate of Adam merely, but in Christ we inherit the fulfilled dominion mandate that He has ushered in. So we are raised with Him and seated with heavenly places, with Him in heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2 6. Matthew 5.5 says we will inherit the earth. We are heirs of the world. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 2 to 3 says we will judge the world. We will judge angels. We will inherit all things. Romans 8.17 says we are co-heirs with Christ in glory. Co-heirs. He restores us to the image of God. He redeems us. He regenerates us. He recreates us in the image of God. He enables us in our human nature that is redeemed in which the sanctifying grace of the power of the Holy Spirit is operating to cause us to be renewed in all righteousness and holiness after the image of our Creator and the knowledge of our Creator. He enables us now to represent God, to reflect God. We are being sanctified. We are in the process of conformity to the image of the Son, Romans 8 says. That is the goal. That is the telos of our salvation. Conformity to the Son. We are beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3. And we are being transformed, verse 17, into the image of Christ our Lord, who is the image of God. The church is the new Eve. The church is the bride of Christ, the bride of the eschatological Adam. The church in union with Christ proclaims the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church now, Christ through the church, is working to multiply the image bearers of God throughout all the earth so that all the earth would be filled with His glory. As Christ begets sons unto glory through the gospel proclamation of the church. And that goes on. And it's going on and on. And that's where we're at right now. 
That's where we are at. Filling the earth with the glorious gospel of Christ. And what happens at the end? He's reigning. He comes back to consummate His reign once the full number of the elect have come in. He subdues all His enemies. And the last enemy to be subdued is death. Death, that despicable, abominable death that came to reign due to the transgression of Adam, usurping the rightful place of man's dominion on the earth. That death is put under His feet. That death is cast into hell. It is destroyed. The destruction of death in the death of Christ to be consummated at His second coming. And Christ reigns. And He hands everything over to the Father so that the manifest, realized kingdom reign of the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit is finally, fully, climactically realized and consummated forever. And we reign there in the new earth together with Him, representing Him, enjoying Him, reflecting Him, fullness of joy in His presence forever. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed to. That is our calling. And our calling now in union with Christ. You know what that means? It means, brethren, that this great commission is urgent. Because the great commission now is the new covenant fulfillment of our dominion mandate. We are to proclaim this kingdom reign of God, the good news of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Our God reigns and oh nations, won't you see it? That's why we're here. Politicians don't ultimately reign. Earthly kings don't ultimately reign. Our King reigns. And that's what we are to proclaim. And that is good news. I mean, that is terrible news for all those who don't kiss the Son lest He be angry because His wrath is quickly kindled. But that is great news. That is great news for all those who have been restored to the image of God in Christ. Amen.